Annette, virtual traveller, and welcome to Stories from Law, a monthly podcast that invites you to rewild yourself through story by exploring nature, folklore, and the stories it inspires. My name is Dawn Nelson, and I am an author and professional storyteller. Kings Under the Hill is this month's theme, and for this episode, I have some ramblings from my walks in the hills, the Ballad of Broomfield Hill, folklore of mountains and barrows, kings and sleeping, and I'll be telling you the story of the king asleep the hill, which is an old English folktale. But first, let's take a walk on Old Winchester Hill. Well, here I am sat on the top of Old Winchester Hill. Old Winchester Hill is part of the South Downs, and from where I'm sat, the landscape goes round in a sort of bowl uh, with a dip in front of me and then opposite me is an Iron Age fort and on it are two barrows and I can see a few people stood on them. Elsewhere, just behind me, the gorse is coming into flower. It's the broom you'll hear about in the ballad I'm singing this month. I can see for miles across the countryside and it's quite a windy day so the fluffy white clouds are drifting past fairly quickly and we've brought a kite to see if we can fly a kite because today I've got my husband and daughter with me to enjoy a bit of the winter sunshine. There's a red kite using the breeze to fly higher and as we were walking in I saw three buzzards doing exactly the same. It is a good day for hunting for these birds. The last of the autumn leaves are mulching down into the mud. The stems of umbellifers unsteady in the wind and the hawthorn still stands bare with uh, bits of lichen spotting it with colour someone has left a little offering of heather on the bench tied up in a little bit of jute string perhaps it's for the fairies in the hawthorn and blackthorn behind me I'm going to make my way round to the Iron Age fort now I'll see you when I get there here we are up on top of the Iron Age fort you may be able to hear in the distance my daughter's voice my husband are about to start trying to fly the kite and we should have enough wind up here to do that. On the path to my left, there is one uneven barrow. And then to my left, but slightly further in front of me, is a more shaped barrow. And then behind that is another uneven barrow. All across this grass is, uh, or this heathland rather, is uh, sheep. And they're doing a good job of keeping 
heathland in good order and healthy for all the animals that live here in this habitat and the plants. They're also pretty good for the wildflowers as well, sheep. They don't tend to eat those and they keep the grass short so the wildflowers can grow through. What's he there? What are the sheep doing up here? Um, they're eating quite a lot of grass and then they're walking across all the paths. Uh-huh. Are they friendly sheep? What are they? Are they friendly sheep? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. That's made me have to judge the poo though, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So there were seven barrows here in total and at the moment I can see four within my line of sight. They are thought to have dated from the Iron Age and they were excavated by Victorians. Do you remember the story when we told you about the King Under the Hill? Yeah. What do you remember about the story? Uh, that it had, had a tree on top of it. It did. <laughs> can you see any trees? Just lone trees are probably up here. See one? Can you see one over there? Oh yeah! I think that one's a hawthorn tree, though. Here we go with attempt to fly kite number one. Yeah. Even though it's breaking a little. It is a little bit, isn't it? It goes way. The there kite it goes. up in the sky. It is. Ready to fly. It goes. It's a very blue sky today, isn't it? Yeah. There's clouds that look like horses' tails, isn't there? And big fluffy ones. Yeah, and big nice and soft and these ones. You hear the wind whistling in the kite? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get it that high because it is very strong. You feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Try again though. Broken strut or no? Flying quite happily, isn't it though? But it's still a very cold. The song I'd like to sing you this month is an old English folk song named Broomfield Hill. It tells the tale of a knight who wages a young maid that if she meets him on the hill where the gorse grows, well, she will not return a maid. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But this maid knows the magic of the land, casts spells upon her would-be lover and wins the wager. So here it is, the Ballad of Broomfield Hill. A wager, a wager with you, fair maid, five hundred pound and ten, and a major shall go to the merry green broom and a major return no more. A wager, a wager with you, kind sir, with your five hundred pounds and ten, that a maid I will go to the merry green broom, and a maid I'll return again. Now when she came to this merry green broom, found her love was fast asleep, with a fine finished rose and a new suit of clothes and a bunch of broom at his feet. Three times she went from the crown of his head, three times from the sole of his feet, three times she kissed his rosy red cheeks as he lay there fast asleep. She took the gold ring from her hand and put it on his thumb, and that was to let her true love know that she'd been there and gone. As soon as he woke from his drowsy sleep and found his true love gone, he then remembered upon the cost of the wager he had done. 
Three times he called for his horse and his man and the horse he'd brought so dear, saying, why didn't you wake me from my sleep when my lady love was here? Three times did I call you master, dear, three times did I stamp my feet. But out of your sleep I could not wake when your lady was there to meet. I'll wager, I'll wager with you, fair maid, here's five hundred pound and ten, that a major will go to the merry green broom and a major return no more. A wager, a wager with you, kind sir, with your five hundred pound and ten, that a maid I will go to the merry green broom, and a maid I'll return again. Across the ancient worlds, there have been many tombs and graves uncovered, which house kings preserved with all their possessions. But of course, we don't really need to go that far to find ancient burials. Beneath the hills of the rolling countryside of the UK are many ancient leaders and kings, and it's arguable that these burials may have sparked the King Under the Hill motif within story. So it's those that I'd like to take a brief look at first. Tumulus, or barrows as they are more commonly known, can be found in many places across the UK. Most of these barrows date back to the Neolithic and into the Bronze Age, and they are burial chambers used by our ancestors for ritualistic burials. Most of the time, the remains found in these barrows are found with possessions, which suggests that they are persons of status within their social groups. But this is not always the case. These barrows can, in fact, hold the remains of as many as 50 people within them, and the grave goods contained within those barrows, while they often lack sufficient evidence to mark the remains of these people as high status. If you live in the UK, you might be surprised at how many of these barrows still exist here and how close they may be to where you live. For me, they are on Petersfield Heath in Hampshire, just 15 minutes up the road from where I live. The Heath has many, many Bronze Age barrows and they contain urns and grave goods. We're still not absolutely sure of the full story of these graves and some of the urns have been reconstructed and are on display in the museum. And it is with the information that they have from these graves that I have been working on a project to interpret the history of a Bronze Age girl found under these barrows. Later this year, I will be performing that story, which I have created to bring the history of the barrows to life. And I'll be performing that for school aged children. Further afield and more well known is the Taplow burial in Berkshire. It is thought to be a 7th century burial mound that contains the remains of a king. This king, or chieftain, is thought to be of high status because he was buried with a sword, three spears, a small knife, two shields, drinking horns, green glass beakers and more. All of these things would have been worth a lot of money during that time. These are all high status goods and would have represented the deceased's wealth and importance within his social group. The remains from this barrow can now be found in the British Museum. The Taplow burial was excavated some 50 years prior to the famous Sutton Hoo ship burial. The Sutton Hoo burial is the site of a cemetery with many graves on it, and it's the richest burial hoard found in England to date. The burial mound that is the most famous is the one that housed the 90-foot ship. This was found surrounded by Anglo-Saxon artefacts, all of significant value, and it is thought that this was the grave of King Radwald, who ruled over East Anglia again in the 7th century. 
The ship itself was just an outline in the grave as the oak had rotted away, but the artefacts that were around it, some still survived and they can be found in the British Museum. There have been other ship burial sites excavated, but nothing quite like Sutton Hoo. At Sutton Hoo, there is also a grave called the Horseman's Mound, and this barrow is thought to contain a prince or a high-status warrior on his horse. He is surrounded by his weapons and tools for everyday use. Whilst burials of warriors with horses are relatively common in Scandinavia, they are actually extremely rare in the UK. So this is a rather wonderful example of its kind. Perhaps these kings and princes and warriors were buried in this way because they were waiting to be called on to go back into battle once more. Perhaps they are the origin of many of the King Under the Hill stories. Valhalla, a place talked of by both Saxons and Vikings, was a place that those who died with honour in battle went to once they had passed. They waited in the mead halls of Valhalla until they were called on again to do battle. This battle would be the day to end all days, Ragnarok. Saxon kings aside, the motif of sleeping kings is a common one and appears in some very famous legends, such as those of the English King Arthur and Irish or Scots Finn McCool. The story goes that these kings wait to be woken, usually by a bell or, well, an overly enthusiastic archaeologist, and when they awake, they will fight and kill anyone they see, for they are waiting for the day when they are asked to defend their kinfolk and country once more. This is considered to be a folktale type 766 and is sometimes known as the Seven Sleepers. What's 766, you ask? Well, this is part of the ATU Folklore Index. I may have mentioned this index before. It's by Arne, Thompson and Uta, hence A-T-U. They were three folklorists, one from Finland, one from America and one from Germany, respectively. And they created an index of motifs to use in fairy tale. This was a means of categorising them, basically. This categorisation started in 1910 with Auntie Arne, was built upon in 1928 and then again in 1962 by Stith Thompson and then finally in 2004 by Hans-Jörg Uther. There is some debate in the storytelling world as to how useful this is, but certainly from an academic standpoint, it helps if you're studying a particular trope or motif in fairy tale. So if you wish to study this particular motif further, you will find it under folktale type 766. It is thought that the King Arthur stories were first recorded in the 11th century. However, it is plausible that these stories were told well before that. This was just the first time they were written down. King Arthur, for those not familiar with his tales, is a king of many legends, a man who once ruled Britain wisely and fairly, so it is told. He hails from Welsh and English folklore, and whether he and his knights of the round table ever truly existed has never been firmly established, but it's generally agreed he did in one form or another. Stories, sites and landscapes connected with this legendary king pop up all over Wales and England, and it is said that when he returned from his last battle, mortally wounded, he returned to the Isle of Avalon. Here he promised that when the people would need him again, he would return once more. 
Avalon is therefore where Arthur waits to this day and we're not absolutely sure where Avalon is. However, many believe it is in fact Glastonbury in Somerset. Glastonbury Tor is the hill in question and beneath it lies King Arthur, the Holy Grail and his knights. There is no doubt that Glastonbury Tor is a very spiritual place and many visit it every year. So you never know, King Arthur might just be there. In Irish, and in fact some Scottish mythology, the king that sleeps beneath the hill is Fionn McCool. He is a warrior and head of the famed Fiannan. He is said to be sleeping beneath a mountain, waiting to return one day. He sleeps with his Fiannan in a cave somewhere in Ireland. Its location is again not known, but if you find it and sound the hunting horn within the cave three times, then you will wake Finn McCool and his warriors. In London, beneath the famous tower, it is thought that the head of Bran the Blessed was buried. Bran the Blessed is a legendary giant warrior king from Welsh mythology. He is most often associated with the Mabinogion, where in the second branch of the tales he forges an alliance with a neighbouring island by marrying his sister to their king. Through a series of events in which his sister is gravely mistreated and insulted, well, a battle commences. It does not end well for Bran and his warriors. Mortally wounded, he insists his remaining warriors cut off his head and carry it to London. As long as his head lies under the tower in London, London is safe from invasion. There are many interesting facets to this legend, one of them being that Bran is actually Welsh for crow or raven, and so some think this is why the ravens are kept in the tower to this day. The most famous legend of a king beneath the hill is sometimes told of King Arthur, but in truth it is attributed to many kings from many legends. And so it is this origin legend, if you like, that I'm going to tell you now, a story of a poor shepherd and a king asleep the hill. Jack was a shepherd. He respected the land he worked on, keeping long hours in the lambing season and walking for miles to find the sheep he looked after new pasture when it was needed. At lunch times, he would give the robin a crumb from his bread and pour the last of the tea on the roots of the old oak. His mother had always taught him to make offerings to the land and he never questioned it. The fields could be a treacherous place, especially if there was fog or snow and he'd never come to any harm, and so he thanked the land, just as his mother had taught him. Jack was, in the main, content with his life, but as the years wore on, Jack got to questioning his situation and his life as a shepherd. Soon he got to thinking he would really like more money, so he could buy the finer things in life. But his mother had always told him, Jack, no good comes of gold, no good at all. It drives men mad, brings out the worst in them, and creates a divide, it does. But as Jack sits on the hill, watching the sheep, he thinks, well, just a little more money to buy maybe a whole joint of meat or a bottle of wine, maybe. That would be good. He ponders how he is going to achieve this wealth and how 
he's going to prove them all wrong one day. As he does this, he whittles away at a long hazel stick that he found the other day when he was up atop the hill where he sat to have his lunch and watch the sheep. The hazel branch would make a good crook. And as he whittles and ponders, ponders and whittles, an old man approaches. Jack knows this man. He's from the village down in the valley. Everyone says he's a little bit, well, eccentric. They say he listens to the whispers in the hedgerows, the buzz of the bees and the gossip from the birds, and some even call him the Green Man, for he knows the way of the land. What have you got there, Jack? he asks. Just an old hazel stick. Good and no. Make a good crook. Jack holds it up to the midday sun for the man to admire. Where did it come from? the old man asks. Over yonder, up top in the hill there, Jack replies. See where the tree is? Jack points towards a hill and the young hazel tree silhouetted against the blue sky. That's no ordinary hazel stick, that Jack. That's worth a lot of money. Can't see me earning anything from this, replies Jack. Well, that's where you're wrong, Jack. You've got to learn to look a little closer. Beneath the hazel tree, there is gold and plenty of it. Is there? Well, now the man had Jack's full attention. There is, Jack, and I've been watching you. I've seen how hard you work and how you care for these sheep. I've seen the way you give that robin a crumb or two from your sandwich. And I've seen how you pour the last of your tea on the roots of the big oak. You deserve a bit of luck. If you meet me at the bottom of the hill at midnight with a lantern and a spade, well, we'll go look for it. Well, eccentric or not, Jack was happy to take the risk that the man might just be telling the truth. So that night Jack didn't sleep at all, and at midnight he took a lantern and a spade and headed out towards the hill with the hazel tree on top. There he met the old man. Excellent. Well done, Jack. That's a good spade for digging, that is. The first thing we have to do, though, is to awake the magic in this hill. We need to walk three times Widdershans round the hill. They did this, Jack with a spade on his shoulder and the old man holding the lantern, walking three times anti-clockwise around the hill. When they finished, they climbed to the top. Now we have to dig beneath the hazel tree, said the old man. They began to dig and a good three feet down into the earth they found a large flint stone slab. This here is the entrance to the chamber of the king under the L, said the old man. But there is something you need to know, Jack, before you go in there. For once you start down these steps, there are many perils. It's dark down there and deep in the middle of the hill, there is a king who sleeps with his knight. It is said that he is King Arthur, but I do not know for sure. Best to be respectful, though, Jack, because you see the king, he is waiting, waiting to be awoken. And when he is awoken, he knows it will be time to fight once again for his people and his land. As you go deep down in the hill, you reach the end of a corridor, just before the room where the kings are sleeping. There you will see a big brass bell. Do not, under any circumstances, touch that bell. For if that bell be ringing... The king and his knights will wake, and they will fight anyone they see. There'll be plenty of gold and silver and jewels for the taking, but this is magic that needs to be respected, Jack, so pay attention, said the old man, tapping the side of his nose. If the king does awake, he'll shout, Is it time? All you need to do to get him to sleep again is to reply, Not yet, my king, 
and he will sleep again and you will be safe. With that, the old man hands Jack the lantern. I'm too old for this task, lad. I'll wait here for you. So, with some trepidation, Jack begins his descent into the hill. He reaches the bottom of a flight of stairs and he walks along a dark corridor until he finally reaches the middle of the hill. As the old man said, there would be. There is a king and his knights asleep beneath the hill, dressed in full armour with shields, swords and spears by their sides. All around them is gold, silver and jewels. Again, as the old man said, there would be. The light from Jack's lantern reflects off the treasures and dissipates around the room and Jack is reminded of a folk tale that he'd been told many years ago. The king asleep the mountain. And here it was. Jack set to, filling his pockets, the pockets of his coats, the pockets of his trousers, pockets of his shirt. Next, he takes out his handkerchief and fills that with gold. Then he takes off his cap and fills that with gold. He looks around for something else and looks down at his feet in doing so and he sees his boots. He takes off his boots and fills them with gold. And then he realises, well, he could also fill his socks. And so that he does, he fills his socks with gold too. Now Jack is weighed heavy with plunder. And with the king and the knights still sleeping, he turns to walk back down the corridor, staggering slightly in the entrance. His shoulder knocks against the brass bell, which rings out throughout the hill. Jack slowly turns to see the king sit up his armour scraping metal against metal as he raises his sword and looking Jack in the eye, his voice echoes through the chamber. Is it time? Thankfully, Jack remembers what the old man said to him. He remembers what he needs to reply to the king. Not yet, my king, says Jack. The king puts his sword back by his side once more, lies down upon the tomb and resumes his sleep. When Jack reaches the top of the hill once more and puts his head out the entrance beneath the hazel tree, the sun is appearing on the horizon and the old man is still waiting for him. You were lucky, Jack. I heard that bell. I'm glad you remembered what to say. Now I can see you have more than enough gold to last you for years, so you take care of it, Jack. And with that, the old man seemed to just disappear. Jack made his way home to show his mother what wealth he had found beneath that hill and to swear her to secrecy. No good ever came of gold, Jack, was all his mother had to say. Over the next seven years, Jack spends his money on fine clothes, fine wine and fine living. He gambles, drinks and fritters it away and he's long given up his job as a shepherd for he no longer has the time or the inclination to tend to the sheep. He no longer sits beneath the oak tree to eat his lunch. He eats in taverns and inns where there is no robin to share his meal. He no longer pours the last of his drink on the oak tree's roots. But he never quite forgets the land, the land that gifted him that gold. Eventually, he has spent so much it looks like he's going to have to get another job again. And then he thinks, well, he could go back to that hill where all that gold and silver and jewels is. So he does go back. And this time, he takes an enormous sack. He digs deep into the hill and finds the flint flagstone once more. He lifts it with ease and makes his way back down the steps along the corridor and into the chamber. This time, he knows what he will find, and he wastes no time filling up the sack with all the treasures he can find. 
He slings the sack over his shoulder, and as he's leaving the chamber and entering the corridor, the large sack of ill-gotten gains knocks against the bell. The king's armour scrapes once more and creaks metal against metal as the king sits up in the tomb, takes hold of his sword, points it at Jack and says, Is it time? It's not, it's not, it's not, says Jack. But of course, listener, if you have indeed been listening, you will know that that is not the correct words. And before Jack can say anything else to correct his mistake, the king and his knights have risen from their tombs. They have taken hold of their swords and their spears and their shields, and with a mighty roar they lunge at Jack and set upon him. Jack doesn't stand a chance. Broken and bloodied, the king and his knights leave Jack, thinking they have defeated him. After some time, Jack crawls along the corridor and up the stairs once more, until he feels the cold night air and the grass of the hill on his hands. He lies down under the full moon, and sleep overtakes him. He wakes as the sun is rising and the birds are singing and every inch of him is aching from the beating he has earned himself. Yet he somehow, somehow manages to crawl back to his mother's house. She opens the door to Jack and she sees his ragged clothes, his bruised and broken body. And she looks down at him and she says, no good ever came a gold, Jack. Of course his mother takes him in and looks after him. She nurses him back to health with willow bark and healing herbs. And soon Jack is able to take work again in the fields as a shepherd. Now he sits once more beneath that oak tree and he shares the crumbs from his sandwich with the robin and tips the last of his tea into the roots of the oak. For Jack has learnt that if you do not respect the land, who knows what will rise up from beneath it. Now, no one has ever been able to find the entrance to that hill again. Perhaps that is for the best. But if you ever find yourself wandering in the countryside, and you see a hill, a barrow or mound of some description, and on the top of it is one hazel tree, well, I'll let you decide what you're going to do. A big thank you to all my patrons for your continued support of the podcast and to all those who have left a review of the podcast on Apple iTunes, shared the podcast with your friends or messaged me to say how much you enjoy the episodes. It makes all the hard work and research worthwhile. And if you do have the time to leave a review on Apple iTunes, it would be very much appreciated. Thank you. Over on my Patreon this month, amongst other things, there is an e-zine packed with recipes to aid peaceful sleep information on where to find the barrows of the UK and a book club read. There is also an audio recording to help aid sleep during the full moon. This is with the help of the Celtic goddess of sleep, Kaya Ivamath. And there is also an exclusive behind the scenes where I'm talking about some of my recommended seasonal reads and almanacs for patrons. You can find the link to join my patron, Rewild Yourself Through Story, in the show notes. I hope to see you there. As always, you can find me on Instagram as at dd underscore storyteller, on Facebook as dd storyteller, and on Twitter as dd underscore storyteller. Do come and say hello, as I would love to tell you another story. Until then, I'll see you next time. Toodle pip.